This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee on day three of the 60-day legislative session. More than 6,000 new cases, 133 more deaths. Those are the latest daily COVID casualties in Florida. The governor clarifies the rules for people under 65 who want to be vaccinated because of medical conditions that make them vulnerable to the virus. You just have to ask your doctor to sign a one-page form from the health department. They don't even have to say why you qualify, just that you do. I think most of the physicians, you know, they have to sign their name to this. They obviously want this to be something that is uh, that, that is legitimate. So I don't think you're going to see any funny business with it. But I think it's more about trusting them. They've seen how this virus has impacted different folks. They can take a look and they can make that determination based on those underlying conditions. A Senate committee debates a bill protecting the health care industry from COVID liability lawsuits. Senator Gary Farmer says the health care heroes may deserve it, but not the bad apples of the nursing home industry. Less than 20 percent of the skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes accounted for more than 65 percent of the COVID deaths. Bad apples are causing the problem. To lower accountability would further encourage those bad apples to perform badly. The bill passed, but it was close. The Transportation Committee in the Senate votes to end MCORs, also known as the Roads to Nowhere. While the goals of MCORs was bold, we need to re-examine the short-term as well as the long-term goals and prioritize uh, where we are with our transportation dollars. The Senate Agriculture Committee approves a bill banning tethering of cats and dogs. Senator Annette Tadeo says it's cruel to the animals and can be fatal for kids who get too close. In the last 10 years, there have been over 40 serious dog attacks in Florida involving chain dogs, four of them fatal, mostly involving children. Tadeo's bill ran into opposition from the Florida Dog Hunters Association, but it was amended to address their concerns. Today on the Sunrise Interview, we talk about sea level rise in Florida with Alec Bogdanov of the American Flood Coalition. He's heading up their efforts here in Florida. We're seeing a new era in the state of Florida. From from Governor DeSantis to the Secretary of DEP to our Speaker and our Senate President, Florida is working together to solve these issues. And it's really momentous in our state. And it just shows that as Floridians, we can tackle any challenge that comes our way if we're really willing to roll our sleeves up and work together. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and the story of a Florida man who is now in jail thanks to his fondness for power tools. But first, a word from the sponsors. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. This public health crisis has shown our one-size-fits-all education system does not meet the needs of every child. Senate Bill 48 rethinks education and provides needed flexibility for students and families, giving students the tools and resources they need to unleash their potential. You can make a difference and improve our education system by visiting fledreform.com to tell your lawmaker to support SB 48. Paid for by Americans Prosperity, Florida. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Thursday, March 4th. This is National Grammar Day, World Obesity Day, and National Hug a GI Day. On this date in 1865, Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated for his second term as U.S. president. The man who would assassinate him about a month later, John Wilkes Booth, was photographed attending the inauguration. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. announced plans for the Poor People's Campaign. And on this date in 1997, President Bill Clinton signed an order banning federally funded human cloning research. 
6,000 new cases of COVID and 133 additional fatalities were reported by the Department of Health Wednesday. The state has now confirmed a total of 1,924,000 cases of the virus. Our death toll has reached 31,829. On the plus side, almost 1.8 million Floridians have received both doses of the vaccine. 1.4 million have received their first shot. The governor says it's now up to your doctor to decide if you have medical conditions that make you eligible for a COVID shot if you're under the age of 65. The health department has posted a link to a one-page form for your physician to fill out. It does not ask what conditions you have, nor does it include a list of qualifying ailments. Governor Ron DeSantis says the doctor simply has to certify that they have a physician-patient relationship with you and that you need the vaccine because you're extremely vulnerable to COVID-19. It's, it's really a doctor's decision. I mean, because um, we wanted to get away from this of like, we're saying you count, you count. So we've had the comorbidities in from the very beginning with hospitals. We said the very initial in December, hospitals, because the hospitals got a lot of vaccine. They can vaccinate anyone who, um, who a doctor deems to be especially vulnerable to COVID due to underlying health conditions. Now what we've done is say, okay, maybe you're not going to a hospital. Maybe you just go to your doctor. The doctor can do that, can vouch for it, and then you can go and, and get a shot at some of these things. But we're really putting that in the hands of the medical doctors rather than us arbitrarily picking and choosing. Because the fact of the matter is, if we pick certain things, we may leave some out. We could include things that may not. So we think we're trusting our doctors is the way to go. I think most of the physicians, you know, they have to sign their name to this. They obviously want this to be something that is uh, that, that is legitimate. So I don't think you're going to see any funny business with it. But I think it's more about trusting them. They've seen how this virus has impacted different folks. They can take a look and they can make that determination based on those underlying conditions. Scheduling a vaccine appointment can still be an exercise in frustration, especially for people who aren't computer savvy. But DeSantis says the more people get vaccinated, the easier it becomes to sign up. Vaccine supplies are increasing, and the Federal Emergency Management Agency has just opened four of its own vaccination centers in Florida. The governor says he's glad to have them. Today is the start of four sites that are going to be run by FEMA. One of them is in Hillsborough County. We also have Miami, Orlando, and Jacksonville. So they're open this morning. Each one's going to offer 3,000 vaccines a day. Uh, the people are being rostered by FEMA, so that's not necessarily the state. I mean, we're helping when, when we're asked, but it's a federally driven thing. But they're going to have, um, you know, that's 12,000 doses a day in addition to what we were already getting. So we didn't divert any vaccine to these sites. The federal government brought additional vaccine, and so we're happy to be able to have those put to use. A bill to shield Florida's healthcare industry from COVID liability lawsuits gets the seal of approval from the Senate Committee on Health Policy. Senator Dennis Baxley of Ocala says there's nothing wrong with bending the rules when you're fighting a war. This has been an incredible war, one like I haven't seen in my life, with a uh, opponent named COVID. These folks we're talking about were the front line of that war. And uh, now to think uh, that they're at risk. I think this is one of the most important bills of this entire session, because what can happen when you go back and nitpick the very warriors who fought the war for you and say they didn't do it perfect? It is you're opening a door uh, of tremendous liability and financial loss to our state. I want to thank every one of them that did the best they could under very, very stressful conditions. And I'm certainly not going to be the one to go pick back through the pile and say you didn't do it right. 
and that uh, we're going to pay out all these settlements. You, it looks like a, a real trail of money here that uh, some folks are hooked on, and uh, this is not the way to do it. We owe these folks protection, and we need to cover their back because they fought this war for us. Senator Gary Farmer of Broward opposes the bill. He has no problem protecting health care workers, but says this also protects the bad apples of the nursing home industry, the ones who failed to meet basic standards even before the pandemic. Less than 20% of the skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes accounted for more than 65% of the COVID deaths. Bad apples are causing the problem. Bad apples exist in every line of business, in every industry. To lower accountability would further encourage those bad apples to perform badly. The system works. The greatest fact-finding tool in the history of mankind, the right to trial by jury, a right so important it was enshrined in our Constitution specifically, should be allowed to continue to work, especially in the case of nursing home residents that have no control over what happens to them. This is going to discourage good behavior. That's not right. It's just not right. So yeah, there's a trail of money that's involved in this bill. But it's not the trail of money going to the lawyers who represent the families, the people who died because of negligence in a nursing home. It's the fact that they don't want to cut into their profit margins. And they want to be insulated from that decision. That's what's driving this from that industry perspective, which again is just 20% that make up the bad actors. Senator Jeff Brandis of St. Petersburg is the sponsor of Senate Bill 74. He says the healthcare industry had our backs during the COVID crisis, and now it's time for the legislature to return the favor. We asked our healthcare providers to MacGyver their way through this, often with conflicting guidance. They did the best they could, even when the tool, that the, the, the best tool they had was a thermometer, which I think we would all agree is a crude tool as a COVID test. But it was the best test we had for months. We had literally thousands of asymptomatic individuals uh, who showed no signs, truly no symptoms of COVID, who for months were going to work. And healthcare providers had really no way of knowing. Testing was not readily available. I remember early on in this, in, in, during COVID. And so there was obviously an incredible struggle to just get simple masks, not to mention gowns and other supplies that they needed. So they were there for us. They were there for our families, our residents, our community, our neighbors on the front end of this. My argument to you is that we need to be there for them on the back end of this. It was close, but the bill passed by a vote of 5-4. to four. It's now in the Rules Committee, which is the last stop before it hits the Senate floor. The Senate Transportation Committee votes to downsize MCORS, an expensive and controversial plan to build three new toll roads in Florida. MCORS is short for Multi-Use Corridors of Regional Economic Significance. Critics call them the roads to nowhere. Senator Gail Harrell of Stewart says a lot has changed since MCORS was first approved by the legislature. Two years ago, we passed the MCORS legislation, adding three corridors 
to our transportation network in the state of Florida. And since that time, the state has faced major, major problems. And the pandemic has really caused us to reevaluate this previous policy and also the budget decisions that came out of that. While the goals of MCORS was bold, we need to reexamine the short-term as well as the long-term goals and prioritize uh, where we are with our transportation dollars. MCORS certainly was a major, major step forward, but also presented major challenges financially. By revisioning our existing roadways, we can accomplish uh, the goals for better traffic flow, improve safety and necessary evacuation routes while saving taxpayer dollars. And that's really what this bill does. It readdresses the MCORS issues, really looking at what we learned from the task force that really spent two years studying MCORS. And what Senate Bill 100 does, it really builds on those recommendations. It builds on a concept that has previously been utilized by DOT through the development of controlled access facilities, including construction, constructing non-toll alternatives uh, to signalized intersections and also retrofitting uh, existing roadways with grade separations, a different way of approaching things as opposed to building three new turnpikes in the state of Florida. But Harold's bill would only cancel one of the three roads. It orders the DOT to plan similar roads to the other two, extending the Florida Turnpike west from Wildwood toward the Suncoast Parkway, and then extending the Suncoast Parkway north by pairing it with U.S. Highway 19. 1,000 Friends in Florida is one of the organizations asking lawmakers to cancel MCORS, but their president, Paul Owens, says they also have concerns about Senator Harold's plan to replace it. We would welcome legislation that would repeal the MCOR's authorization of 2019, but we have some concerns about Senate Bill 100 that we hope would be addressed if this bill were to become law. Uh, as we read it, the bill does not require the road improvements within the Suncoast Connector and Northern Turnpike corridors to pass the Florida Turnpike Enterprises standard economic feasibility test. This would set a bad precedent for other road projects and could lead to unneeded roads, draining funding for more urgently needed projects. Tax and toll payers deserve to know that their dollars are being invested in economically feasible projects. Harold's replacement for MCORS was approved by the Senate Transportation Committee on a vote of 5-3 to three and has moved on to the Appropriations Committee. Ever get the feeling Florida politics is going to the dogs? Well, the Senate Agriculture Committee has just approved a bill prohibiting, and let me quote this so I get it directly, the tethering of a domestic dog or a domestic cat to a stationary or inanimate object with a rope, chain, or other means to restrict, confine, or restrain its movement. The anti-tethering bill is sponsored by Senator Annette Tadeo of Miami-Dade. SB 650 is about uh, domestic dog and cat teethering. In 2019, Florida was listed second in the country with a resounding 1,268 cases for dog bites or other dog-related injuries causing fractures and other serious injuries. That's about one bite victim for every 17 dogs in Florida. One of the most notable cases was in 2012, where a 17-month-old Jacksonville boy, Dylan Andres, 
was attacked and killed by his neighbor's chained dog. In the last 10 years, there have been over 40 serious dog attacks in Florida involving chained dogs, four of them fatal, mostly involving children. Tadeo's bill ran into opposition from members of the Florida State Dog Hunters Association, who say there are times dogs have to be tethered during training or a hunt. But she's trying to work things out, and her bill was amended. I believe hunters are the people that treat the dogs the best of everyone, truly invest a lot of money into their dogs. They care tremendously about their dogs. They tend to be their family and their pet, and they stay in their house, and and they don't tend to teether. But I know from experience that there is some teethering that goes on with the hunting of the dog. I do have concerns with the amendment because people are going to use it as an excuse just like we saw so many people use as an excuse to get on a plane with a dog. They went on the internet, got some kind of certificate that, you know, it was a companion or a, or a you know, a, a psychologist said you needed it to be able to fly. We don't want that situation where we have all these chained dogs when what we're trying to avoid is situations where kids are killed or these dogs that many of them are chained for the purpose of fighting, which obviously we don't want to see and it's not supposed to happen. So the intent of the bill uh, is still there. This creates a little bit of an issue, but I think, and I know I'm committed to working with the senator and with everyone to make sure that hunters are not affected because I know they also want to protect their beloved pets. Once the hunting amendment was added, the bill was approved unanimously. Next up, we'll talk about sea level rise with Dr. Alec Bogdanoff, an oceanographer, meteorologist, and Florida native working with the American Flood Association. And you probably know which state faces the greatest threat. The Sunrise interview is on deck as we pause to pay the bills. In Florida, if you fall behind on court debt payments, the state takes away your driver's license. But if you can't drive, you can't work. So how can you make enough money to pay the debt? This policy makes no sense. Let's end debt-based license suspensions and help Florida get back to work. Welcome back to the Sunrise Interview. Our guest today is Alec Bogdanoff. He is the Florida lead for the American Flood Coalition. And if you're dealing with floods, Florida is the place to be. Welcome, Alec. And and tell us, what is the agenda this year in the legislature? Because Florida is, of course, probably the most vulnerable state in the country. It's rising sea level. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me today. Uh, It's a pleasure to be on with you. Before I kind of get into the deets of the legislature, I'd love to just briefly tell you a little bit about the American Flood Coalition. Absolutely. Um, So I I have the pleasure of working as the Florida lead for the American Flood Coalition. We're a nonprofit that was founded about two and a half years ago, and we are focused on flooding and sea level rise. We're a nonpartisan coalition of people on the front lines of flooding, including cities, elected officials, military leaders, businesses, and civic groups. And we're all working together to adapt to the reality of stronger storms, higher seas, and more frequent flooding. Today, we have over 250 members across 19 states, 100 of them, a little over 100 of them are in Florida, including 60 local governments. And so we really believe that flooding is the defining issue of our time. And as you said, there's really no other place uh, other than Florida that, that really knows how at risk communities can be. And so the legislature is really focused on tackling this issue and saying, how do we make flood mitigation the top, a top priority for the state of Florida? How do we support our local governments? And how do we really begin to understand in a systematic way how we address the challenges? When you say flood mitigation, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, seawalls. It's a lot more than that, though, isn't it? 
Oh, it is a lot more than just that. And and frankly, you know, from from an infrastructure standpoint, seawalls are just one of the tools in the toolbox. Uh, we we really want to also make sure we focus on natural solutions, um, thinking about things like mangroves and beach renourishment. So it's a really an all of the above approach. Um, but ultimately, when we talk about this, it's it's not just about infrastructure. It's about a process for the state. It's about making sure that we understand what's at risk, where it's at risk, and then how are we going to handle that asset or that community? And so the state is taking the approach that we need to not only have local governments tell us what they need and how we can support them, but the state itself needs to start planning in a really smart, thoughtful way about how we build a work plan for the entire state. Just like we'll do for DOT, you know, we, we know what projects we need to do where and what roadways need to be replaced when. We need to start taking that approach to flooding. What kind of backlog? I mean, DOT always has this huge backlog on their five-year plan. How bad is the backlog getting on sea level rise projects? Well, the reality is we, we, we have a lot of work to do across the state. Uh, from a flood issue, uh, we have 1,300 miles of coastline. That means we have 1,300 miles of, you know, frontline defenses, whether it's beaches or mangroves. In addition, we have things like flood control systems across South Florida. So you have really big infrastructure issues, but every local government has a flood control system uh, in their stormwater system. And we, we don't necessarily think about it as that because we talk about it as a storm drain. But the reality is our stormwater systems are a primary defense against flooding in our communities. And so the reality is we have billions of dollars we need to spend. We know this. Um, you know, you can look at the fact that Miami put $100 million uh, in the Miami Forever Bond specifically towards flood mitigation and sea level rise. They know they have a lot more to spend. That's just one example, um, but it's, it's gonna be a challenge and it's gonna be uh, a lot of money. And so it's great to see uh, the speaker and the legislature say they're going to start with $100 million in the first year. Uh, that's that's a sizable amount of money compared to how much we've already been spending on this. Now, the, the bill is not, not more than just money, right? There is a whole C-level philosophy that's evolving in the legislature. Can you talk about the bills that have been filed? Certainly. So um, there is the Always Ready bill, which is the signature bill being carried by uh, Representative uh, Demi Busada Cabrera. And so it does a few things. The first thing it does is expands grants to local governments to help them assess their climate vulnerabilities and risks. So uh, DEP has already, through the Florida Resilient Coastlines Program, been supporting local governments in, in performing these vulnerability assessments. So these really allow a local government to understand what they need to do to address the future. They're going to expand those grant programs, make it available to more communities. We're going to establish the first ever statewide assessment that really prioritizes what's at risk and shows where the states need to focus its resources. We're going to create a statewide flooding and sea level rise resilience plan that then takes those local government plans and starts prioritizing them. This is where that $100 million comes in. We're going to empower regional resilience collaboratives uh, to engage in their communities and be able to really support those local efforts. This means that we're going to be able to bring more state and federal dollars back to the communities that really need it. Um, and the last and very cool thing is uh, it establishes a Florida flood hub for applied research and innovation at the University of South Florida in St. Petersburg to focus on collecting Florida's data needs, specifically on flooding. And it's going to be a collaborative hub across all our research institutions and universities 
to really figure out what data we need and how we can innovate, how we can solve this problem and drive our economy through real solutions to this problem. Alec, do you have any theories as to why this is suddenly an issue that is being embraced politically when for years it was one of those hot button issues that lawmakers just wouldn't touch? All politics is local. And, you know, we talked about sunny day tidal flooding. Uh, this was a Miami Beach issue a couple of years ago. And the reality is it's, it's not a Miami Beach issue. It's not a Miami issue. It's a, it's a coastal community issue across the world. And it just so happens that Florida is uniquely at risk because we are fairly flat. And we are hearing it from our communities across the state. Water doesn't care about your political affiliation. It's going to flood where it goes. And so we now know that our local governments are hearing time and time again, what are we doing? It's flooding more often. How are we going to handle this? And because of that, our local governments, our mayors are asking the legislature, how are you all going to support me? What does this mean to my community? They want, they really want assistance. Um, but when half of our local governments are fewer than 6,000 people, they need those are the ones that really need the support. They can't hire the technical experts. They can't hire these chief resilience officers that only focus on on flooding and climate. So I think we're hearing a lot from the ground up. Um, I think we also have leadership that sees the future and knows that this will be a challenge for our state. Speaker Sprawls, President Simpson, you know, have said that this is going to be a defining issue for our generation, and they want to tackle this issue. I think that um, we're, we're, we're seeing a new era in the state of Florida, from, from Governor DeSantis uh, to the Secretary of DEP to our Speaker and our Senate President. Florida is working together to solve these issues, and it's really momentous in our state. And it just shows that as Floridians, we can tackle any challenge that comes our way if we're really willing to roll our sleeves up and work together. In addition to his work with the American Flood Association, Dr. Bogdanoff consults with public and private sector clients on sea level rise and resilience. I should also mention he's the son of Ellen Bogdanoff, a real ass kicker who served eight years in the state legislature. Your calendar of events begins at 8.30 when trustees at Florida A&M will hold committee meetings. That's followed by a full board meeting at 11. The Florida Supreme Court meets at 9 to hear an appeal in the case of Christopher Cruz, who was sent to death row for murdering Christopher Jeremy in Volusia County eight years ago. The Supreme Court will also be issuing its weekly opinions at 11. The Florida Healthy Kids Board of Directors meets by phone at 9. The Rules and the Finance and Tax Committees in the Senate meet at 9. The House Civil Justice, Infrastructure, Insurance, and Secondary Education Committees all meet at 10. Senate Appropriations meets at 11.30, and the Florida House meets at 3.30 in the first full floor session of the year. Finally today, a Florida man is accused of stealing more than $17,000 worth of power tools from 11 Home Depot stores in Broward County. Investigators say Elaine Carre was wanted for thefts at Home Depot stores in Deerfield Beach, Pompano Beach, North Lauderdale, and Sunrise. There's a warrant for his arrest in Palm Beach County and two pending cases against him in North Miami. But you have to give the guy a nod for brand loyalty. Arrest records show he always stole Milwaukee brand power tools. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.